captured that song ever since Martin Luther wrote it. And we praise you that your kingdom will stand no matter what happens in this life, in this world, no matter who is in charge of the government or anything else. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. God's truth is ever sure. His kingdom is forever. Well, Father, praise you. And we get to be a part of your kingdom. You are our king. Lord, sometimes, so often, especially the American church, treats you like our butler. But you are our king. Remind us of that this morning. Remind us that you are king. And give us hearts that rejoice to be your subjects. Hearts that delight to do what you will and not look to you simply as the one to give us what we want. May you be glorified in this service now, Father, as our hearts are changed. The glory of Christ is exalted. We are lowered in our own eyes and delight to be on our faces before our King who loves us and gave his life for us. Change us now, Father, as we meditate on your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 2, again this morning, John chapter 2, and we'll be in John chapter 2 for a little while. Um, I will not finish this text. I will hardly start this text today, and I know you're all shocked by that. And I will be out of town next week, and so it'll be two weeks before uh, we come back to look at this again. And frankly, this morning, for the most part, um, 90% of what I'm going to offer you this morning is context. And then at the end, we'll look at the text briefly and give you a little bit of application. I know that's not what we normally do here, but you'll see why here in just a second. In the world today, there are such distorted views about who Jesus is that many people, frankly, find it impossible to know the truth. Was he a revolutionary? Was he a self-appointed founder of a new world religion? Was he a prophet or some political rabble-rouser? Was he the original faith healer, creating a name for himself, hoping to pocket a lot of money? All kinds of things have been postulated about who Jesus is. And so who is he? Who is Jesus? This is the question that the Apostle John seeks to answer in the entirety of the gospel that bears his name. The gospel of John is all about answering the question, who is Jesus Christ? And John's answer, as we, see, we have seen almost every week from John chapter 20, is this. Jesus is the Son of God. And he wants us to conclude that Jesus Christ is the Son of God so that we can find life in his name. And so this is the question that John has sought to answer since we began looking at this in chapter 1. The Gospel of John is all about revealing Jesus. And over the past several weeks, we've learned a number of things about Jesus. For example, in chapter 1, back in the prologue, we first learned about accessible Jesus. Wasn't that wonderful? And then the assertive Jesus in verses 40 through 43. Omniscient Jesus, 44 through 49. Generous Jesus, wasn't that great? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And today, we take a little bit of a turn. 
because beginning today, we are going to learn about confrontational Jesus. Confrontational Jesus. You see, you can't dice Jesus up and take the parts of him that you like and leave the rest behind. If you get him, you get all of him. If you don't have all of him, then you never got him. Unfortunately, many ideas of who Jesus is and was simply don't match up with the biblical record. And frankly, we, we like the fact that Jesus was accessible. We like that. We like the fact that Jesus is generous, especially in our prosperous culture. We really like that. We may even admire the fact that he was omniscient. Perhaps we are theologically stimulated by the reality that he is sovereign but we might be tempted to take a little offense at the suggestion that Jesus is confrontational. And we wouldn't be alone. We like the Jesus who is there when we need him. We like the Jesus who inspires us and makes us feel good about ourselves. We like therapeutic Jesus. What we don't like is a Jesus who wants to meddle with our lives and tell us what we need to do. But you see, my friends, we need to be careful here because Jesus is not only the friend of sinners. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is the captain of an army of angels. He is not only gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. Our text this morning reminds us of that. It reminds us that one of the infinite attributes of the Son of God is his holy anger and intolerance towards sin and anything that belittles or distorts the glory of God. We need to know this Jesus. We need to know him. Now, the rest of what I'm going to give you here is is context. We're going to talk about the glory of the temple. If you're taking notes, this is point one, the glory of the temple And we're going to start here because, frankly, um, as as I was preparing this this week, I realized I can't just jump into this text and, and, and kind of unpack what was happening because the original readers would have understood context that we don't know. One of the benefits that I have uh, that's, that's a little bit unique for pastors is that I decided I wanted to go into ministry when I was in high school. And so when I graduated, I dove into Bible school. The advantage of that, rather than seeking a secular education and then changing over to seminary for four years, is I got four extra years of studying the Bible. And the advantage that gave me is this. I learned a lot of Old Testament, a lot of Old Testament, that frankly, there's not time to learn if you just go to seminary. And one of the things that that I love about the Old Testament is the whole story, well, the whole story But one particular element revolves around the temple. So as we approach this text this morning, the first thing we need to observe is the obvious context that Jesus, whatever Jesus is doing here, he's doing it in Jerusalem. Specifically, he's doing it in the temple. And we've got to make sense of it from that context. Now, a lot of times when we're studying scripture, we read through something like this and we don't make the obvious observation. Observation number one, temple. And you've got to ask yourself, what do we need to know about the temple in order for this text to make sense to us? 
And so let's take a few minutes to think about what the temple was all about, the temple of the Lord. What was the temple all about? Well, the temple of the Lord was a structure that was modeled after what was known in the Old Testament as the tabernacle, which is just another word. So it's a fancy religious-sounding word for tent. It was the tent that God instructed Moses to build all the way back in the book of Exodus, toward the end of the book of Exodus. Now, you remember the story of the Exodus. God's people lived in Israel. They had been there for 400 years. Uh, in the early days, they were a favored people, but as a Pharaoh who came in, who didn't know anything about Joseph, um, he wanted to build a lot of stuff, and he needed slave labor, and so he conscripted Israel to be his slaves. And so they served Pharaoh for the rest of however long that was, a couple hundred years, as slaves under Pharaoh. And they began to cry out to the Lord in their oppression, and God heard their cry. And you know the story. God heard their cry, and he sent to Israel in Egypt, he sent to them a man by the name of Moses. And Moses and Aaron were sent by God to approach Pharaoh, king of Egypt, with a divine message. And you know the message because it's very short. And the message is this, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, what? you got to be kidding. I'm not letting your people go. And that was part of the plan of the Lord, frankly. Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. He hardened his heart. In fact, if you, re- if you read through the text, it's amazing because half the time the text says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. The other half of the time it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, God was not ready to let the people go until precisely the right time. He was going to make a point about this whole thing, about his glory, his majesty, his rule that the world would never forget. And how do I know the world has never forgotten? (laughs) Because we still remember. People talk about this. Even unbelieving Jews today know this story. And even unbelievers, unbelieving Gentiles know something of it. And so you know the story. Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go, so God pounded Egypt with ten plagues. Remember, he turned the water into blood. Just just an observation. Jesus did the opposite. He turned the water into wine. Isn't that great? Let's ponder that for a little while. When you think about previous text we looked at when Jesus turned the water into wine. But he sent the flies. He sent the gnats. He sent the frogs. He sent darkness and hail and fire. And he sent all kinds of things to plague Egypt. And again and again and again he told Pharaoh, let my people go, and he would not. And then God sent the tenth plague, the one final plague that would pry his grip free of God's people. And it was the plague of the death of the firstborn. God would send the angel of the Lord. Some refer to him as the death angel. But the angel of the Lord came, and God told his people he would come, and he would take the life of the firstborn of every household. And if you didn't want to be one of those households, there was something you could do. There was something you could do. What you could do is you could take a lamb, and you could, you could slaughter it, take the blood from that lamb, 
put it in a bowl, go out to the front of your house, take a plant, hyssop, and sprinkle the blood on your doorframe. And when the angel would come, and then you would eat the lamb together with your household and any single people who didn't have a family, gather them up into your house, and you could have this, this Passover meal together. And when the angel of death came, he would literally see the blood on your door and do what? Pass over, hence the name of the feast, the Passover. And what a picture of the gospel that is. And this is what Israel did, but in the house of Pharaoh, all of the firstborn were taken, not just of men, but of women and flocks and herds and everything that had breath. The firstborn of everything died in one night. Can you imagine? And then Pharaoh not only said, you can go, he said, get out, get out, get out, get out, and take anything you want with you, just get out. Take all of our gold, take all of our possessions, take anything you want, just get out. And so they left. They left very wealthy people. They plundered Egypt. And these slaves now left as a rich nation. And they got to the sea, the Red Sea, and thought it was all over. Pharaoh changed his mind again and decided to kill them. And God opened up the Red Sea and had them cross, and he rescued them. He rescued them. And then God took his people to Mount Sinai where he entered into covenant with them. He would be their God and they would be his people, his exclusive people. And this covenant was a, was a binding covenant. It was very much like a marriage covenant. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God describes Israel as his wife. And one time he even divorces her for her infidelity. But this is his wife he is her husband. She is his bride. They enter into covenant and he passes to them his law to establish order in this nation and to expose their need for a redeemer because of their sin. And they wouldn't catch on to that for a long time and for the most part never would. Moreover, he promised to dwell among them in a very personal way. But here's the question. How could a holy God dwell among an unholy people? How could a holy bridegroom marry an unholy bride? Something had to be done. There had to be a means of reconciling sinners to a holy God and a way of maintaining that happy, reconciled state of their relationship forever. So this is what God did. God instituted a sacrificial system. He instituted a sacrificial system with animals that would be slain, their blood would be spilled to bear the guilt of sinners. And he established a class of priests who would oversee the offerings and the daily sacrifices. And, and, and they would do their work on behalf of the people in a, in a very special place. It was going to be in a portable building. It was going to be in a very uh, elaborate kind of tent. It would be the tabernacle. The tabernacle of God. And the tabernacle became the center of everything for Israel. 
If you know anything about the Old Testament and how God set things up, every detail, God, was, God is such a God of details. So when they traveled through the desert, you remember headed toward the promised land? Had a five-day walk, took them 40 years to get there. And um, when they moved, whenever, whenever they stopped and God had them set up camp, you know how they did it? At first, they set up the tent of meeting. And then they set up every camp, every um, tribe of Judah was set up in a specific place with the tent in the middle, with the priests set up around the tent, and then each tribe in a very specific place. But at the center of everything was this, was this place, this tent. But it wasn't like church for us. I mean, it was in, in some senses, but there was one major, major difference. Here's how God would lead his people. He led his people very visibly and sometimes audibly by his capital P presence the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory in those days was this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And you get this image that this this horizontal pillar of fire would move, and as it moved, the people realized God is moving. It's time to pick up tent and start hiking and and. They would tear the tent of meeting down, all the families would tear their tents down, and they'd start moving, and they would follow this cloud or this pillar of fire. When it stopped, they stopped. When they stopped, they would set up camp exactly the same way every time, and here's what would happen. That tabernacle would be set up, and that pillar of fire would come down vertically and plant itself right in the middle of the tabernacle, actually at the end of the tabernacle where there was the Holy of Holies, and it would, as it were, touch the ground on one end and the sky on the other. So all of the camp would look, and they could see God. I realize God is omnipresent and you can't compress him into a pillar of anything. That's why they called it his presence. It was his representative, visible presence. And here's the part you need to know. And I'm going to repeat this again and again. Their whole lives literally revolved around the worship of God. Their whole lives revolved around the worship of God. Everything they did was before the face of God. If there was sin to be atoned for, where did they go? They went to the the tabernacle. When there was thanksgiving to be offered, they went to the tabernacle. When Moses needed wisdom, he met with God. Where? At the tabernacle. If there was a dispute to be settled, it happened at the tabernacle. It happened at This is another way of saying it. The temple, the tent, the tabernacle, what is it? It is now to be understood as the house of God. It's where he lives. It's his place. You have any needs, you come to his house. You go over to God's house. Where is he? He's accessible. He's right in the middle of your camp. You take to him your needs. You take to him your problems. 
You take to him your offering for sin. You take to him your joyful thanksgiving. You take to him your worship and your singing and your praying. He's there. Their whole lives were to be lives of worship that revolved around the presence of God. It was an amazing thing. And so to say the least, the tabernacle was an important place in Israel. It was the center of their very lives, the center of their nation, the center of their culture as a people. And this was no more apparent than at the feast of the Passover. Now Israel had appointed feasts, appointed by law. I'm going to focus now on the feast of Passover because when Jesus entered the temple, it was just before the Passover. Everything was set for Passover, and so we need to know something a little more about Passover. So let's think about this. Let's rewind the tape again, okay? We're in the desert. We're going to go back to Egypt, back to Egypt. And here we are in Egypt. The plagues are coming, plagues are coming, plagues are coming. Moses says, last plague is coming. Get the lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood on your doorpost. The angel will pass by. And from that day forward, Israel celebrated the Passover every year in remembrance of the salvation that God brought to his people with extraordinary power. In fact, so important was this feast that every year, every, every Jew and every Messianic Jew celebrates the Passover to this day. And then, and then the people entered the promised land and they settled in. And after a while, they began crying out for a king. And so God gave them a kings. And the second king was a young man by the name of David. And God prospered Israel in David's hands. One of the things he did was he conquered the Jebusites. You know where the Jebusites lived? In a little city called Jerusalem. He conquered Jerusalem and made that his capital city. One of the things he immediately did was he built himself a house. He built this gorgeous house. You've been down the street and seen the Bass's house? Well, you can hardly see it through the whatever but it's beautiful. It's great. You can see it on Google Maps. Just look at it from satellite. That's nothing compared to what David built himself. And after, I mean, it took 20 years to build the thing. He gets done building it. He's sitting in his house one day, enjoying his new digs. And he looks out and he realizes, look at God's house. It's a tent. Look at my house. It's a palace. Something's wrong with this. Something's wrong with this. We've got to fix this. We've got to fix this. We need to fix this now. God shouldn't have a puny little, little tent out there when I have this opulent palace. And so he goes to Nathan and he says, Nathan, I've got an idea. Let's build God a house. What do you think? Nathan says, that's a great idea. Do it. And God comes to Nathan and says, bad counsel. <laughs> Go back to David and say, I don't need a house. You can't put me in a house. I appreciate the house. Let's go ahead and build the house, but you're not going to build it. You're a man of bloodshed. And I've used you for that purpose and it accomplished much for the kingdom, but you can't do it. Your son Solomon will do it. And David said, well, can I at least have the privilege of gathering all the materials so that my son Solomon can build you a house? And the prophet Nathan said, God approves. Solomon comes along, 
Oh my goodness, did he ever build a house? He made David's palace look drab. You know why? Because he covered that thing with gold. Not all of the outside, but all of the inside. All of the wooden paneling, the floors, they walked in there barefoot. You step on tile, you feel that cold? How would you like to step on gold? And people have asked me, with that one lamp, that one menorah in the holy place, we don't know of one in the holy of holies, and maybe the Shekinah glory provided the light, but after that, how did, how did they get light in there? Listen, if all the walls and ceilings and floors are gold, uh, you're not going to have any problem with light. It was the most beautiful thing. It was made out of this white, beautiful stone. It had these, these massive pillars in the front, and they each had a name. Every detail of it was sketched out by God. And if you lived in the east, and you would walk to Jerusalem in the morning as the sun was rising, and you would come to the Mount of Olives and look across, and the sun would beam down on the front doors that were covered with gold, and the sun would reflect, and you would see what appeared to be the glory of God. I mean, it just had to be amazing. Had to be amazing. Um, and so we fast forward a little bit. Solomon created that temple, and it was a it was an amazing thing. But then God, according to his covenant, had told them, If you obey me, I will bless you, but if you disobey me and let your heart go out after other gods, I will bring nations in to destroy you. My people. The northern tribe of Israel, called Israel, was the first to go. 722 B.C., God sent Assyria in, wiped them out. They disappeared, never came back. Nobody knows what happened to the survivors. And then God started sending prophets to Judah, the southern tribe, which consisted of Jerusalem and surrounding territory. Then God said to the leaders uh, through the prophets, to Judah, do you remember what happened to your sister? It's going to happen to you unless you repent. And they wouldn't repent. They held out longer, but eventually they didn't repent. And God raised up Babylon to come and first um, hamstring them so that they had no power to fight back and then took them into captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and all of those seven times they came and took people away. Three major occasions where they took the people and left nobody but the poor, brought them to Babylon for 70 years, and then God sent them back as he promised, I will bring you back to the land. And you know what the first thing they attempted to do was? Build the temple. We're going to re-erect Solomon's temple. You know what the problem was? They were dirt poor. They had nothing who were they going to tax? They couldn't tax anybody. There was just, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people at the most, and they didn't have any money. They had no military. They had nothing. And so they finally, after much ado, they, they, they laid the foundation of the temple, and it was pitiful. And the elders, the oldest men who survived and had gone, made the journey all the way back to Israel, to Jerusalem, when they saw the coronation or the, uh, the dedication of the temple foundation, you know what they did? They wept and basically said, that's, that's pitiful. We'll, we'll never see the temple of the Lord again. 
And then you remember Nehemiah came along and he rebuilt the wall. And Ezra came and said, listen, we've got to finish this temple. And they finished the temple, but it was nothing like Solomon had built. Well, fast forward a little more, a lot more, 400 years more. About 20, 15 to 20 years before Jesus was born, there was a man put in office um, or was already in office. And his name, he was the king over that region under Caesar. And his name was Herod the Great. You know why they called him the Great? Because his view of himself was greatness. He loved himself. You know, the whole self-esteem people would love King Herod. He was their poster boy. He named things after himself. He built buildings. You've heard about Masada, his summer home on top of that mesa, um, where all those Jews, the zealots, ran to when Rome came in 70 AD to destroy the temple and everything in it. He, he built Caesarea Philippi. He built all kinds of architectural things, but he, he was a smart guy. He was not only brilliant in terms of architecture, he was smart politically. And he had all these Jewish people, these Jewish leaders, and they were, they were constantly a thorn in, their, in his side because they had a tendency to riot and revolt. And so he came up with a great plan. I am going to win these people over. And so he gathered the Jewish leaders. They were very tentative, you can imagine, and gathered the Jewish leaders, and he said, I've got a great idea. I've been looking at your temple. And no disrespect, but it's pitiful. We can do better than that. We'll do it exactly the way you want it. And we won't interrupt any of the sacrifices. You keep on doing the sacrifices. We will build around it until such time as we can make the transition into the new temple. And I'll pay for the whole thing. What do you say? And they said, are you kidding we would love that. So about 15, 20 years before Jesus was born, they started building that thing. They started building it. And it was magnificent. It wasn't Solomon's temple, but it was this marvelous, massive, beautiful complex of interior columned porches. They, they referred to it as Solomon's colonnade, as if it... It somehow reflected back on the glory of Solomon's day. It was so beautiful. They had paved courtyards and marble walls. And of course, at the center of all of that was the house of God. The temple proper, which was this amazing edifice. It was the tallest part of the structure by far. But it only contained two, two significant rooms, the Holy of Holies in the front and the little, I'm sorry, the holy place in the front where where there was the table of showbread and the menorah, the the lampstand, and the altar of incense. And then there was this curtain, this veil, but it was not like anything you'd ever seen. Some of the historians in that day say it was nearly a foot thick. Who knows how they made that? It was this massive curtain that hung separating the presence of God from the presence of the priests and the people. And it was an unbelievable structure. To put all of this into perspective, here is, here's how big. You think about the temple courtyard that was surrounded by this wall that, was, that had uh, this, this covered court, uh, um, like walkway under it with columns all the way around. And the, the floor, the, 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 uh, the ground of this area, unlike anything that they normally walked on, the ground in this place was paved with block pavement. So you got in there, it was clean, there wasn't dust. 
You remember when Karat came, our translator from Kazakhstan, he came, and the first time he came to this country, remember what he kept saying? I love this country. And we said, why? And he'd say, he'd put out his boots and say, look, no dust. <laughs> and I thought that's the way it was when people walked into the temple. No dust. This place is clean. You can walk on pavement. You don't get your feet as dirty. And it's beautiful. Now, how big was it? Estimates that I've read, between 35 and 45 acres. Now, those of us who don't live in the country, let me help you out on acres. In the mansion that I live in, over in North Benbrook, (laughs) with all of my lands (laughs) and children, one quarter acre. (laughs) I think it's less than a quarter. I exaggerated a little bit, but... It's uh, about a quarter acre. Okay, now think of our church property here. We've got the chapel. We've got the education wing, a little parking area. We've got the field with the, with the volleyball pit and all that grass out there. A little less than, if I have it right, a little less than three acres. Did I put it in perspective? Let, let me just do the math for you. If this is three acres, the temple platform where all of this was built, you think of open expanse, 15 times larger than our church campus. Historians tell us when you would walk into the temple, into those gates, there were 10 gates that entered in. When you walked in, uh, there would be priests everywhere just doing different things and and lots of open space for you to just go. You could go over to one of the, the porch areas, one of the colonnades, and listen to someone teaching the scriptures. You could get counsel there. You could pray there. You could bring your sacrifices. All of that, this big, open, clean space. It was safe there. It was beautiful there. It was majestic there. You would come there to worship. You would hear this all-male choir singing, and it was glorious. And they even had tour guides. They had priests whose job it was just to take you around and introduce you to the place. And it'd take a long time, 45 acres. It was magnificent. And Herod had a huge job in front of him when he decided to do this because Mount Moriah, where they built all of this, where it is said that, um, that Abraham offered um, Isaac, or he was going to offer Isaac, that was the mountain. Isn't that interesting? And the Dome of the Rock that is there now, you know what the Muslims say happened there on that rock, right in the center of the Temple Mound? That's where they say Muhammad uh, spiritually, not physically, but spiritually ascended into heaven. That's why they're so... They're so tenacious about not giving that area up. In any case, Herod wanted to take this dome, this little hill, this little mountain, and make it flat on top. But he didn't cut anything away. You know what he did? He built these huge retainer walls made out of block that was massive. How in the world they moved it, nobody really knows. Same way they did the pyramids, but who knows? Aliens. I don't know. No, just kidding. Just seeing if you're awake. And um, he built, he dug down deep, laid these stones, built them up, I forget how high, 45 feet, 65 feet up, so that he would get them high enough so they could fill the dirt in to make this 45-acre flat piece of property on the top. And that's why the Pharisees said to Jesus when he said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, and they said, it's taken 46 years to build this thing. 
This was a massive place. And it was designed for you to walk in and just be awed. And to say, God, thank you for this place. Thank you for a place at the center of our country where we can come and worship. Their whole lives were designed to center around this place. Their whole lives revolved around the worship of the one true God. Everything they did, their planting, their harvesting, their feasting, their, their celebrating, their funerals, everything was designed to give glory to God. And it all brought you back to his house. They had appointed feasts where every year they had to come back to his house. It was as if God was saying, listen, go wherever you want. The land is yours, but at least three times a year you're coming to my house. You're coming to my place, and we are going to enjoy fellowship. We are going to party. We're going to eat food. He even gave explicit instructions. If you live too far away, then you can't possibly bring a tenth of your grain and a tenth of your everything else, your flock. You can't bring livestock to sacrifice just because of the the incredible hardship that it would be to try to move all of that. You don't have your own semi wagon. (laughs) Then here's what you do. I don't want you to have to worry about that. So sell it wherever you live and bring the money And spend the week, and you buy anything that will make you happy. Buy food, buy wine, buy whatever whatever will make your family happy. And come and make sacrifices, and eat, and drink, and rejoice at my place. Isn't that great? That's what the temple was for. It was God's house. It was God's house. Now let me set up one more thing before, we, before I start poking at your hearts a little bit. One more structural thing you need to know about the temple. It was very, very carefully designed. And here is the design. In the center, uh, maybe off to the side, but for the sake of, of, of visualizing it um, while you're sitting there in the pew, Imagine the temple proper, the house of God, which was, which was tall and relatively smart, small compared to the whole complex. But that's where the, the sacrifices were made in front of this. The laver was there. The altar of burnt offerings was there. And then the priests would go up past the columns into the holy place. And the holy place was the beginning of the temple proper. And it had just a little courtyard in front of it where the sacrifices could be made and all of that. And that was the inner court. And the only people who could go there were, um, were the priests. And just outside of that, you would go to a, through a door uh, uh, facing east. You would come, as you're coming out, you would go into this next courtyard, and it was bigger. And the next courtyard was called the Court of Men. And if you were a man who had not done anything unclean, you were ceremonially clean, then you could actually come into the temple and go into the court of men, but you couldn't go any further. And then just outside of that was this other area, and it was called the court of women. You can kind of see how this was set up, right? Only the priest could go all the way in, and then only the high priest could go all the way to the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. And that was at the Passover, 
But the court of women was an interesting place because there anybody could bring their offerings. And so when you read the story about the widow's might and Jesus and his disciples are sitting there under this this column porch area and uh, they see this widow come up and she puts her little coin in there and the Pharisees are blowing trumpets and they're dumping, they're jangling all of this stuff down into those trumpet-shaped receptacles and making a big fanfare. All of that happened in the court of women. And as you're coming out to the next stage, you have what's called the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles, this is important, the court of the Gentiles made up the majority of that acreage. This paved um, courtyard that was called the the court of the Gentiles. Why was it called the court of the Gentiles? Actually, uh, the Jews actually cut, cut it kind of in half with this little fence And they put a sign on it that said, no Gentile beyond this point under penalty of death. Just to make sure they stayed far enough away from the temple. But in God's mind, the Gentiles were welcome. They could only go so far, but they were welcome. It was the house of God for the nations. Israel was to be like a city on a hill. You see where that analogy comes from? They were to literally be a city on a hill. Jerusalem was a city on the hill because the temple was this gleaming light on the top of this hill, and it was like a lighthouse that was calling the nations to come and find your joy and your salvation and your redemption in God. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, this temple, not yet complete, wouldn't be complete for a number of years after he died, and ironically, it was completed just before Rome came in and destroyed it. And by the time temple, but by the time Jesus came into the temple, here's the important thing that you need to know. By the time Jesus got there and walked into the temple court of the Gentiles, that first court you come to, Israel had forgotten the purpose of the temple. It wasn't God's house anymore. They had taken it over like a bunch of rodents. This beautiful place, they sacked it and took it as their own. The glory of the temple was overshadowed and overtaken by chaos in the temple. Absolute chaos in the temple. On the feast days when hundreds of thousands of people would come from all the uh, adjacent nations, the Jews would come to Jerusalem. Every family would typically come prepared to make some sacrifice to the Lord at the temple. And for that purpose, there had been set up on the Mount of Olives little temporary markets where pilgrims could buy the necessary offerings and anything else they needed to fulfill their obligations at the temple. Remember, this is Passover. And so every family unit has to sacrifice a lamb. And it was an amazing, amazing thing that we don't have time to go into. In Jesus' time, however, here's what happened. Imagine the Mount of Olives right across from the city. Easy walk. Easy walk. If you go there today, you can leave the old city, go down into the Kidron Valley, come up to the Mount of Olives, and there are. It's right there. And that's where these little markets were set up. And that was appropriate. That was fine. But here's what happened. In Jesus' time, the high priest, whose name was Annas, had transformed these feast days into an opportunity to line his own pockets. 
To compete with the little markets on the Mount of Olives, he established his own business right there within the temple walls in the largest court known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, when you would walk into the court of the Gentiles, there wasn't lots of open space for you to wander around and to, and to gaze and marvel at and pray and listen to the singing and hear the teaching. Now, it was chaos. It was wall-to-wall people and animals. It was here that Annas set up his, his feast day supermarket. It was kind of like a super Walmart for religious celebrations, only Annas had never picked up on Sam Walton's philosophy of falling prices. Everything was at a premium. Everything was about making a profit. One author writes this, the business enterprise in the court of the Gentiles came to be known as the Bazaar of Annas, whose chief priests and other associates oversaw the temple franchises. Merchants would buy rights to a concession stand for selling uh, sacrificial animals and wine or oil or salt or for exchanging money into its proper currency for the denominations used in the temple offerings. And according to the Levitical law, any animal provided by the priests could be offered at the temple. But if the chief priest in Anna's Mart If they determined that the animal that you brought them was not sufficient, they forced you to buy one of theirs. Annas Mart made certain that the animals not bought in one of their franchises would be judged unacceptable, giving their concessionaires the de facto right to provide all of the animals and that significant profit. And you would bring your little perfect white lamb that you've been nurturing since birth, and you would walk in, and, and the priest would look over your perfect little lamb and say, that's a blemished lamb. You can't sacrifice that here. You have to buy one of ours. It, w- it, was, like, it was like organized crime. That's exactly what it was. And this is what Jesus found when he entered the temple on the first day of the Passover week. We've seen the glory of the temple. We've seen the chaos of the temple. Lastly, Messiah in the temple. Now we're ready to actually look at the text, John chapter 2, verse 13. Read along with me now. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and with the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these out, take these away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want you to think about Jesus' parables that are not in the book of John. There's one where Jesus says, there was a certain landowner who took a trip. He left his property, he left his house. And he had his servants come and he said, take care of my house when I'm gone and I will be back. And one day the landowner decided to send 
one of his servants to go and collect what was due him from the vineyards and the crops and the herds and whatever profit was his due. And the first servant, representative of a prophet, shows up at the father's estate and his servants see him and they beat them. And the master of the house sends another servant and when they see him, they kill him. And he sends another servant, and they beat him and ran him out of time. And finally, the, the owner of the house says, I'll send my son. They'll surely respect my son. But when the son came, they looked at him, and they said, Behold the heir. If we kill him, all of this is ours. Sound familiar? And so they killed him. It was Jesus who told that parable. He knew exactly what was going on. And when he entered his daddy's house, hoping to find this beautiful place of prayer and worship, he found chaos. Do you remember how John referred to Jesus back in the prologue? In chapter 1, verse 14, He says this, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You remember, we spent a long time talking about that. He dwelt among us, literally the Greek word there is tabernacled among us, a clear reference all the way back to God's original design with Moses, the house of God. He set up his house here. He pitched his tent here. And John says, we saw his glory. This is John's way of saying that the God who once lived in the tabernacle of Moses has now returned to earth to tabernacle among his people once again. And here we find that when God in the person of Jesus Christ came to his own house, the temple, his father's house, his people had long since forgotten whose it belonged to. If you were God, how would you respond? If you were God, how would you respond? We've just seen how Jesus responded. He was furious. He was furious. Oh, beloved. There are so many ways to apply this text to our own lives, and I hardly know where to begin. John's chief point John's chief point is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's the King. He's the King's Son. He's the Prince of heaven and earth. But he is God's people's King. John's chief point is to demonstrate that, and that becomes obvious when we see John inserting here an Old Testament quote out of Psalm 69 by saying that the disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That was a messianic text. This was a scripture that spoke of the coming Messiah, and Jesus was fulfilling this right before their eyes. So the most important thing to consider is this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You should believe that, John is saying. You should put all of your trust in him, all of your hope. In him, you will find life in his name. But there's something more personal that I want us to consider. When Jesus died on the cross, you remember what happened inside the temple? 
God took that temple veil and tore it from top to bottom. He opened the way symbolically to the Father. What does that mean? Don't need the temple anymore. People have free access. Don't need human priesthood anymore. People have free access. They now have, in place of the shadows of priestly service, they now have the great high priest. Instead of the shadowy offerings that were offered year after year, day after day, month after month, all of the blood was shed. Now that shadow has been fulfilled in the substance of Christ. He is not only the great high priest, but he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The temple is is obsolete. We now have Christ. So what happened to the temple? What happened to the temple? New Testament, Apostle Paul, in his mind, two things happened to the temple. The temple became two things. Number one, it became the church. And number two, it became your body. Now watch this. The implications of this are far-reaching. If you belong to Christ, he has taken up residence in you. You are now the holy of holies. Your body has been set apart as a dwelling place of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So here's the question. I mean, before we go condemning uh, the, uh, the, the, the leaders in Israel, do we understand this? Do we understand where God's temple went? This is why, for example, the Apostle Paul, when he speaks about the absurdity of the possibility of a Christian engaging in sexual immorality, he asks this question, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You don't get to do whatever you want. There are strings attached to this relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, you can do nothing to earn your salvation, but covenant relationship with him means you have great privilege and great responsibility. You are a living temple of the Lord. You stand, as it were, as a city on a hill, calling your neighbors, calling your co-workers, calling your family members, calling the nations, come and see my life. Find God in me. Does your life say that? Does my life say that to the people around me? Do they look at me and say, if I need to find God, I can go to And this isn't just the right of a preacher. It's every child of God. Every child of God. Do you not know that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Beloved, think about the implications. Before we condemn, before we condemn the Pharisees, we need to ask ourselves, what am I doing with my body? There were 10 gates that entered into the temple. And the Puritans were great about this in the the symbolism. Because if you're a temple, there are gates coming into you as well. You have an eye gate and an ear gate. 
and the mouth gains. What are you bringing in through your eyes? What are you bringing in through your ears? What are you taking in by your mouth? Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, the chief characteristic of our lives should be the joyful worship of God. The pure and holy worship of God. It doesn't mean we don't work. We work, but we work with excellence because our work is an offering to God. We do our school. Yes, we do our school, but we do it with excellence. We pursue excellence because it is an offering of worship to God. In our eating, we choose sometimes to feast and sometimes to fast and all of it in between because we approach food as an act of worship to God. We laugh when we should laugh. We cry with those who weep. We rejoice and sometimes cultivate sorrow because we live to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. That's why we're here. You're looking for meaning and purpose in your life? This is why you're here. You are the temple of the Lord. You exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And not only that, but you get the privilege of worshiping the Lord in the very presence, in his very presence, every moment of your life. You know why? Because you always have access to the Holy of Holies. It is in you. It's amazing The New Testament shows both sides of this. If you ever get confused, am I in Christ or is he in me? Both. (laughs) Ephesians, you are in Christ. Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Any questions? Every part of your life is surrounded and immersed in the glory and the person of Jesus Christ. The question is this. Are your choices and is your life being lived consistent with who you are? who you are. I would dare say that most of us, most of our lives are cluttered with every conceivable distraction and most of them are perfectly allowable and lawful. And other Christians would not come and look and see what you were distracted by and say, that's wrong because it's not wrong but it is so distracting. And it distracts us from worship. So how's your worship? That's the question. That was the question for the whole life of Israel, and that's the question for us. How's your worship of God? And frankly, I began thinking about this this week and wondering, if Jesus came to check out my temple, what would I be full of? What would my temple be full of? Worship, prayer, scripture, singing, discipleship, ministry, loving the unlovely, diligent labor to the glory of God, or would it be full of entertainment and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and some, some kind of sensuality that's so pervasive in every aspect of our culture, or profit-making or pleasure-seeking? What would be at the center of my life if Jesus were to come into my temple? I dare say there have been times in my life where it was perfectly appropriate for him to come and say, where's my scourge of cords? And I love you, but you need some confrontation. 
Do you remember the verbiage in Hebrews chapter 12? He's talking about discipline. And he says, God disciplines you as sons, right? And everyone whom he loves, he, what's the next word? Scourges. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying God doesn't want us to enjoy life. It's just the opposite. He wants us to enjoy him more than life and to live in such a way that invites others to find their joy in him. And beloved, I I know by my own experience, I know what it's like to pursue joy, happiness, satisfaction, and all that the, well, not all that the world has to offer, praise the Lord, but much of what the world has to offer. And I come up dissatisfied and feeling guilty and out of fellowship with God and I haven't done anything unlawful. But I also know what it's like to live a life that's a little more disciplined than that where I'm in fellowship with God and my heart is pure and I love to pray and sing God's praises and deny myself the things of this life that might encumber me, and that's better. It's better. So how's this for confrontational Jesus? There's much more here to discover, and we'll come back to this next time. But here's the point. We must not think of Jesus Christ merely in terms of his accessibility and generosity. We know why? Because we will turn that into an opportunity for the flesh. And we'll turn our whole relationship into God as my butler rather than God as my Lord. So we must not think of Jesus Christ merely in terms of his accessibility and generosity for those he loves. Because he created us for his own glory. And therefore, he will not hesitate to confront our sin. And that, beloved, is good for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I, I have tasted your severe mercy many times. And I can stand here this morning and praise you for it. Thank you for not just being a warm, cuddly God who does whatever we desire and trying to win our hearts. I praise you that you are God. And above you there is no other and that you will not share your glory with another. And because we are your children and have been given such privilege, you will confront us even while you give us access, even while you bless us with every good thing, even while you invite us to enjoy the good things that you have made for us to enjoy in this life, yet you will confront us because you love us. And so collectively, Father, we say, thank you, praise you. Teach us, Father, to worship you in holiness and in truth. For your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray it in Jesus' name.